I, I'm uh, like Bill. I'm, I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to talk about um, something that I care very much about, uh, which is teaching uh, methodology. Um, and I'm going to be. Uh, I, Bill and I didn't uh, do this uh, deliberately, um, but sometimes the best things are by happenstance. And so, uh, whereas Bill talked almost exclusively about teaching uh, graduate methodology classes, I'm going to talk exclusively about teaching undergraduate methodology classes. Uh, a lot of the same. Um, Barriers uh, exist. There are lots of questions about what software to use and how much stuff can we fit in a particular term, and we'll get to all of those things. Um, but uh, I want to talk to you about sort of what I mean by what 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 should we teach? What should we be doing in these classes? So I have a I have a I have an agenda. Um, I do. I have well, actually I have more than I have more than one agenda. So we'll do some preliminaries. Uh, I want to talk about the goals of a quantitative methods class uh, in political science, again, for undergraduates. Um, I want to talk about a, uh, an outline for an undergraduate course in quantitative methodology that focuses on two things. The first is thinking skills uh, necessary for assessing causal relationships, and then the related statistical skills uh, for assessing causal relationships. But in our view, in my view, I'm going to use the plural, um, uh, not because of the royal we, but because of, I, have a, I have one other particular person in mind you'll hear about in a second. Uh, in our view, the thinking skills and the statistical skills should never be separated. And so my view, our view of teaching an undergraduate class in quantitative methodology means that you must teach research design and statistics at the same time. So, uh, whereas Bill was making the case, and I think quite rightly, that trying to do that in one semester for graduate students is, is a, that's, that's a journey that's destined to end up in a place you do not want to go. Um, that in, in, in for, when you're teaching undergraduates, you can do some of that stuff uh, in one term. I'm going to say the word semester, I know, and I know you're going to say, I don't, do, I don't have 15 weeks, it's okay. <laughs> Uh, I have some thoughts about how to encourage students to begin to become producers of their own research. And, and, and I'll talk quite um, uh, generically about how, how we can encourage them to become, to grow into, to start. Because at the end of one term of anything with undergraduates, they're not going to be full-fledged producers of research. We, none of us were, right? I mean, and so none of them will be either. But, but we can encourage them how to you know, start. And then I'll have uh, some final remarks. I, I always will. So preliminaries. Here we go. So uh, I, I have some I have some views about things like this, and, and in many of your universities, this may be th these may be just entirely untenable questions, entirely untenable, and that's fine. Uh, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, and, and not all universities are the same. Um, uh, but I realize that when departments make decisions about their curriculum, if they're going to say, should we require a class like this for our undergraduates, the, the people they're going to look to are really the people sitting here in this room. Should we require all of the, should we require a class like this? Um, I'm going to say that the answer to this question is yes, that, that all, uh, and, and how could you be surprised that I was going to say yes to something like this? Um, uh, most people think that all of their stuff should be required. I, I also teach classes in public opinion, and no, I don't think that everyone should be required to take a public opinion class, so I, I don't want to grade that many exams, I suppose. Um, but should we require quantitative methods classes for political science majors? I, I do believe that we should, and I'll tell you why in, in, in another slide. Uh, it creates a particular problem, um, and, and this is a, a particular problem that as I move into becoming an old person, 
and 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 I'm and and I'm, I'm now quite old. Um, if departments require these classes, I, I think of all of my younger colleagues who teach us to teach some of these classes. I teach them every semester, uh, but you know we offer many sections of them. And I look at many of my younger colleagues that don't have tenure, and they say, "But Paul, they they're going to hate me. They're going they, if if it's a captive audience, my my teaching evaluations are going to go absolutely through the floor, and they're going to hate me, and I'm going to wonder if this is going to hurt my chances to to achieve tenure." And and uh, at many universities, not all universities, um, we make a special a bonus mark for instructors who teach service classes. Service classes we call teaching undergraduate research methods a service class. Why is it a service class? Because it benefits every other person in the department. When they leave your class with skills, it makes them teaching their classes easier. You're providing a public good, right? Think of this, and, and, and we need to describe to our colleagues the public good nature of teaching research methods and how you're willing to provide the public good given selective incentives. Because we all read Mansur Olson, and we're not stupid enough. We're not, I mean, only a genuinely stupid person would provide public goods without selective incentives, right? An irrational person, in the words of Mansur Olson. And so, so let, let's, let's, let's propose the following selective incentive. Um, that, that, that my course evaluations for this class, not for the other classes that I do, my course evaluations for this, if it were a regression framework, we'd have a dummy variable for it. And we just adjust. And we create a new mean based on those classes. Do I, compared to other people who teach these classes, or compared to how I taught it last time, do I do well? Compared to other classes in your department that might be considered service classes, like it at, at a university in Texas A&M or where JJ teaches at UNT, they also require two classes in American politics for, actually not just for all political science majors, for every student in the university. <laughs> Because apparently the Texas legislature is made up exclusively of people who are political science majors. I, I think that's actually true. Um, so be that as it may, uh, it creates a captive audience for us. And we call those service classes too. Because we end up with a whole bunch of engineers in those classes who don't want to take political science. Understand, it's fine. I don't mind that they don't want to. It's not my fault that they have to. That's the legislature's fault. So we adjust those classes. They're considered service classes. And, and our, our young faculty aren't afraid of what's going to happen to them. Now, if, now, if, if it, now I have a, a different caveat here, which is to say, if you're afraid that the students are going to hate you, if that's like a threat to your self-esteem, then, then actually try not to require it. Because, <laughs> you know, that's... They, they, they generally don't like you. In fact, um, on my first day, on my first day of teaching these classes, my, my, my very first slide, which actually the exact slide that I have on this, has in very large letters, and in quote marks, it says, dude, this is not why I became a political science major. And they, they said, hey, you wrote dude on your slides. And, and, and I said, I said, I've heard this. It's fine. I, I'd actually rather you not call me dude. Um, <laughs> um, but I know that's what you're thinking. I can totally tell. And, and when you have that slide up, you know what? The students smile at you. And I say, you know what? I know that taking this class was not your dream. I know that the only reason you're here is because it's required. That is not a threat to me. It doesn't, it's not a threat to my sort of sense of self. There are good reasons that we're going to require you to take this class. And on the next slide, I'm going to show you what they are. So you, all you got to do is give me one slide. Right. 
And then if you want to, you know, that's okay. You, if you end up hating it, that's okay. I think that it's a big mistake teaching undergraduate classes to, to assume any role as like a proselytizer. Like a, I'm, I'm an evangelist for statistics, and here I am trying to, trying to like, you know, use the, 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 the example of like preaching to the choir. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible idea to be a street preacher trying to tell people that unless you know undergraduate statistics, you're going to go straight to statistical hell. Because, you know, just like with most street preachers, they just people just walk on by and say, you're nuts. Whatever, I don't care. So I, I really avoid that at all costs. I never say that. I say, here's reasons that we require this class of you, and you may find these reasons compelling, too. If you don't, then you can take that up with the department head. Because I didn't make him do it. So here's another interesting question. Uh, if you do require a class like this, when should it be taught? Is this a class that you should push freshmen and sophomores into, first-year students into, or is this kind of more viewed as a capstone class? This is something for juniors and seniors and the like. I have an opinion on this, and, and fortunately, the department had allowed me to sort of push this opinion onto um, our department advisors. We have 900 majors in our department. Um, and so I don't do undergraduate advising because we just have too many people. So as soon as people sign up for a political science major, that that one the, one of the first things they say is, "When are you going to take uh, the research methods class?" We'll we'll get you in that for next semester. As soon as they become a major, they 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 can't force them to do it, but they can uh, they they funnel them toward it. So I'm teaching a class with 20 students right now, and 11 of them are freshmen. They have tomorrow off. I'm going home. I won't make it there. So I, I like getting them younger. Um, and frankly, my colleagues like that we get them younger, too. They really do, because then they're familiar with what a regression table looks like. And then they can teach the substance of what they want to do, and they can actually have them read articles from journals that we care about. Uh, and that, to me, is that's, that's what I'd really like to do. So some preliminary questions. And then a caveat. So um, I wrote a book. Uh, with my uh, colleague and friend Guy Witten. Uh, this was published by Cambridge in 2009, and a second edition is, uh, is a second edition exists on that laptop right over there. It was sent just two weeks ago to the people at Cambridge, and uh, we opened some champagne because it's really nice to finish something like that. It's very, very nice. Uh, so the, the second edition will be available for classes next uh, September. Not, it won't be done in time for spring classes, but it'll be available for, for next fall. Um, I mentioned this, and, I, and I, it's, you know, it's kind of, um, I, I just want you to see all the cards on the table. I know some of you are familiar with the book and some of you even use it, but I, I don't want you to think that what I'm here doing is like sit, trying to sell my book, though those of you who are familiar with the book will know that I'm advocating stuff that comes from the book, but I'm not doing that in order to sell the book. I, I, I wrote the book to sort of say, this is what I think ought to be taught in classes like this. And so both of these things come from the same place, right? But don't get the causal ordering wrong here, right? Kelstead's just trying to sell books. Um, if it happens to have that effect, that's just a charmingly, <laughs> charmingly wonderful thing. And I, I, I'd, be, I'd be very, very happy with that as well. By the way, speaking of the book, um, I give away uh, as much stuff as anybody wants. I give away uh, slides either in uh, Beamer LaTeX format or PowerPoint format. Uh, we give away syllabi, uh, uh, multiple choice exam. There's a there's a, a multiple choice exam bank at uh, the Cambridge website. I give away essay exam uh, things because I, I I teach these classes to 20 people. I I make them write essays uh, and do problems. Essays in a methods class, you know, um, and so they write essays in blue books 
for me. I'm happy to give away anything like that. I, I, I respond to every email that comes about stuff like this. And um, the one thing I haven't done yet is just create a public Dropbox for all this stuff, which if I were you know really smart, that's what I would do. Anybody who's got Dropbox, can just, I could just point them to this. In any case, so uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite there yet, but, but uh, I think that's where I'm going. Uh, and I also, ha I also have a, a big zip file with all the graphics from the book, and uh, instructors often find the, the graphics to be useful, too. So if you, if you want any stuff like that, um, please let me know. This is the cover from the first edition. We're working on the second one. So what is this class supposed to be about? So this is what I tell people. This is what I tell the students. This is the second slide. After the dude, this isn't why I became a poli-sci major. I know. I actually tell them this. Can you imagine? Um, in most, most departments in the United States are called departments of political science. I know that this department here under, for undergraduates is the Department of Political Science and International Relations. Some are the Department of Government. Uh, fair enough. Princeton's the Department of Politics, but most are the Department of Political Science. And I say, I know that all of you became political science majors for the political part. But there's a science part there too, right? I mean, and, 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 and actually you can see the 19-year-olds like kind of tip their head and go, I never thought of it. I mean, you can just see they never thought of it that way. And you can introduce it to them. And you can say, oh, okay, so, so why is it important to learn some science? Three reasons. The first... Um, I want you to become a critical consumer of information in the media. And th these are thinking skills. I said, I, I am going to teach you some statistics, right? And I'm pretty sure that you're going to forget the formulas. That's okay. That's, that, 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 that you, just hopefully you don't forget them until after the final. Um, if you forget them before the final, I'll have a little bit of a problem. But if you forget it after, that's okay. But, but, but if you, you, there's some thinking skills that I think you're going to hold on to much, much later than the final exam, if we do this well in this class this semester. And so the first is, I want you to be a critical consumer of information in the media. Maybe this is uh, less true in Europe, but in the United States, uh, there, there's at least a significant portion of American 18, 19 year olds who are, uh, who are, who are inculcated with this notion that they should be suspicious of what they hear in the media because someone's just trying to lie to you in the media. And, and actually, you can use this, we as instructors can use this to our advantage and say, well, I'm going to teach you how to be a critical evaluator of, of information that other people are trying to use to persuade you. And you're going to learn some thinking skills and put them through a test. And you're going to say, oh, how much of that should I believe? Because if you don't have these skills, then you know what? You're in an intellectually weak position. And you're not fully able to critically evaluate what other people are trying to convince you of because people are trying to convince you of stuff all the time. Do you wanna do you wanna just believe the stuff you see on TV, or do you want to evaluate it and make up your own mind? And the American kids kind of like go, I mean, you've got you've got all the conservative ones right there. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. And frankly, a lot of the other ones too, but especially the conservatives. And since you're teaching these classes in Texas for the first time, JJ, um, I can assure you that 80% of the undergraduates from Texas uh, share, share this suspicion. I just, I'm just saying. I want students to be competent consumers of political science research so that they can pick up an article from BJPS or the APSR uh, or, you know, most articles. We know that these things vary in technical degrees, but I want them to be able to pick up a 15, 18, 22 page article from a decent journal, ones that I help them find, right, and, and say, I want you to be able to 
be what I'll just call a competent consumer, not an expert consumer. So they're not going to go to the latest um, Jacoby article in the JOP and say, you know, I have some some 18-year-old from Dallas who's going to say, you know, like, well, this is where Jacoby got it all wrong. He's like, no, no, not not after one semester, maybe after two. <laughs> and and this is the place where our colleagues will love us, right? If we if we teach classes like this and we teach them well, our colleagues who teach classes in comparative politics, classes in inter international relations, classes in uh, in my department, American politics, uh, they should be very happy with stuff like this and say, you don't have to either just use textbooks, you, or, or you don't have to teach them any of the material yourself, you can actually teach them the interesting theories that are going on and, and say, there's a regression table. Okay, fair. And, and what I tell students uh, when, I, when I have this up is I tell them the following thing. I say, you know what? I know what you do when you like, um, have something open and you, and you turn the page and like, oh, there's a, there's a table. Awesome! I get to skip this page, and then, and they, and they, and they laugh, and they, they look at you like, oh, "How did you know that I did that?" Like, I know, I know that's what you do. Well, now at the end of this semester, what I want you to be able to do is feel guilty the next time you do that, and say that Kelstead knows. And, oh, I want to skip this table, but somehow he's like watching. <laughs> I don't want to skip. I, I can't skip the table. I've got to get into it. Good. Good. Get into it, right? Last one. I want to get students to perform basic statistical analyses using commonly used software. And I'll divert right here really quickly to say that uh, when I teach undergraduates, uh, I, I, I teach them to use SPSS, which I think is atrocious software, actually. I really, really dislike it quite a bit. Uh, I don't tell them that it's, a I, I, that's, a, that's a bad idea, right, ever to tell students that you don't like something you're teaching them. That's a, that's a half a point down in your course evaluations right there, every time. Don't ever tell them, don't, and by the way, don't ever tell them you don't like the textbook either, especially if you use the Kelstead and Whitney. <laughs> uh, I, I, I actually find it very nice to use my own textbook because I, I tell them the, the first day, I say, I, you, I'll never tell you I don't like the book. So. And by the way, I offer, I always offer to give the students $5.15 for every time they show me a receipt for the book because and no, one, no one's taking me up on it. But I use SPSS for, for the reason that, that basically, at least in the United States, um, the marketplace uh, for people at that level prefers SPSS. And I actually tell students stories, uh, that, and, and these are genuinely true stories. Uh, this, this happened um, two years ago. In the, in, uh, there was a student who had an internship for a Republican organization working, uh, trying to elect Republicans to the Texas legislature, which seems like probably a really easy force. <laughs> you have such a natural advantage. <laughs> uh, it's like trying to sell umbrellas in England. I mean, you should, be, you should, you should do really well. So. Um, uh, he was an intern. It was his first week as an intern, and you know what he was doing? He was getting coffee. You know, he was making Starbucks runs and bringing in. And and someone came in with a stack of, of output from their polling company, and 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 uh, they're, they're all these they were all guys uh, running for office in the Texas legislature. And someone said, uh, "Our pollsters that we just paid all this money for just gave us this SPSS output. Who in here knows how to use SPSS?" And there's a bunch of like lawyers who. They're smart people, but they don't know anything about this. And the kid puts down the tray of lattes and he says, "I think I do." And and he literally he became he he never went and got lattes again for anybody else all the rest of his summer internship. 
I, it's a great story. It's, it has the virtue of being true. Uh, uh, what it, what it, I'd probably tell it even if it wasn't true. Uh, but, it, but, it, but, it, but it has the virtue of being true. This is why we need to teach classes to students like this. I tell them stuff like this. They probably don't care all that much about that third thing. That's why I put it third. Um, so, okay. So I think that the goal of our teaching in a class like this should be to say, what, what, what do I do? You know, you know I teach classes, right? I mean, what, what, you know, it's like, what do you think I do besides teach classes? Sit in your office all by yourself when people don't come to visit you. Yes, that's actually true. Office hours tend to be the loneliest time of the uh, week for me. Probably are for many of you. So, but I tell them, I'm a scientist. And all of science, and political science is, a, is an aspiring science at least, uh, a young science, an immature science. Uh, scientists do two things. First, we generate new causal theories. And I use the word causal all the time. What's a theory? A theory is not, you know, a, and again, maybe this is just an American problem, but for a lot of students, that word theory is kind of a hang up. A theory is like, oh, it's not yet a fact. Right? It's a theory. It's not, it's not a fact. It's not true. It's like, it's theory is sub fact. And so I always talk about causal theory as saying, no, this is an idea about how the world works. Does something cause something else? And so the first thing we do is generate new causal theories. And frankly, that's the most important thing we do. And God, I wish I did it more often. Don't you all? I wish you do. Like, and the more, the, more, the more causal theoretical ideas we have, we'll, we'll shoot up the pecking order of our discipline really fast. And the second thing we do is we test these new causal theories against evidence. We go out looking for evidence somehow, and we say, how does this theory square against that evidence? Hmm, this is basically, this is science. There you go. That's all it is, you know? Uh, and and I, I think that's a pretty straightforward explanation of what we do most of the time. So, if, if, if science is all about the study of causality, generating new causal ideas and then testing them, then what we need to do is equip students with thinking skills and associated statistical skills that are designed to assess causal relationships. Everything's about causality, every single thing. And that's what I tell them in the very, the, the second day of class, not, not on the first day, but the second day of class, that this is about studying causality, because that's what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I tell them, you know, so what, what do I study causality about? Political behavior and public opinion. I study why public opinion changes over time or happens not to, and what the causal forces are that push public opinion in different directions at different points in time. And they sit there and they go, oh, yeah, I'm, okay. So let's talk about what a course might be like in uh, quantitative methodology. Thinking skills and then statistics. In that order, thinking skills first. And this is, this is a disarming thing because you know, students see this class and they'll think, oh, so this is the stats class, stats class. Go, if this is a stats class, we're going to get several weeks into it before there's a you know, summation sign, right? There's, there's, there, we're we're going to be a while at it. Um, and then, but then we will do statistics, mostly toward the end of the class. So the first thing I say is after, after dealing with, uh, after dealing with uh, this idea of causality and causal theories, uh, we say, well, where do theories come from? Where do they come from? How do we get a new theory? Uh, when we uh, wrote the first edition of the book, um, as I point down to my laptop, um, uh, Cambridge got reviews of the text and, and some uh, very uh, insightful instructor, uh, who I, we still don't know the, the name of, uh, said, 
Well, you, you don't have a place, any place in the book where you have like a, a, a kind of a roadmap for how do you get a new theory, right? I mean, could you guys, and, and, and he or she used the word recipe. So could you have a recipe for like, you know, like if I add, you know, two dashes of this and a pinch of this and I stir on low heat for 20 minutes, that, then, you know, out will come a theory or at least some good sauce. Um, and, 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 and Guy and I sat down and we thought, um, oh, I, I can't do that. Uh, and if I did have a recipe for theory building, I would not share it with anybody. <laughs> Guy and I would take it to our graves, and maybe, just maybe, we'd give it to our children or something like that. Uh, but, but there isn't a way to generate new theories kind of like this. Um, so we, we talk about theory building actually as an art, not a science. Where do theories come from? Theories come from several different places, but the important thing is that, that, that for science, it has to be a new theory. Um, it, the, the revised edition of the book, the second edition of the book, is going to have a lot more emphasis on newness in, in a variety of the things that we do. Um, because a lot of students' ideas that they're going to want to test on their own with their own data are you know, very well-researched ideas. And we you know, want to not discourage people. Uh, but, you know, to sit there and say, okay, uh, go, go read this article by Jacoby. And he, he, he did this when you were, like, still in kindergarten. Um, and that's okay. That doesn't mean you're stupid. That just meant that Bill's older than you and he beat you to it. So, we, you know, we need to, now we need to stand on the shoulders of giants like Bill Jacoby and, and go do the next step ourselves, right? So we have to have stuff that's new. So new theories, in, in our view, come from four places. They come from focusing rigorously on variables. You said this quite nicely. We, we, we don't examine constants. And more, we focus on dependent variables. We think about, well, why do presidential approval rates fluctuate? What are the causes of approval rates changing? Why do incumbents sometimes win and sometimes lose? Why do uh, people in charge of assigning legislation to committees sometimes assign multiple uh, sort of jurisdictions and sometimes only assign one jurisdiction for a bill? Things like that. Why do countries decide to escalate a conflict into gunfire and sometimes not? Um, because political science isn't history, I really try to get students to think about, instead of thinking about, why did Obama beat McCain in 2008? Which is a question that they're you know, in, inherently kind of, it, it, again, in America, very easily interested in its kids' cake to get them to talk about things like that. To say, well, let's talk about why uh, incumbent parties um, sometimes uh, are successful and sometimes get crushed. And, and, then, and then let's see if we can generalize this outward and learn to drop the proper names and drop the proper dates as much as possible, as much as we possibly can do that. Uh, I, I actually show them because my father has a master's degree in history, uh, and he gave me his books. I still, he's, he's for some reason discarded his history books, so he's still, he's still alive and kicking. Um, there are these books called The Making of the President 1960. You know these, Teddy White, right? The Making of the President 1960, The Making of the President 1964, and they're the thickest books ever and they just you know describe you know uh, you know presidential candidates stopping on a train and this speech that they gave in Milwaukee Wisconsin and all this stuff as if this was like the whole thing and it's all proper names and dates and there's kind of well written and all that stuff and that's history but but political scientists are m more interested as scientists in the more generalized more generalized um, phenomena and we need to try and do that we need to learn um, from the literature, we need to learn to read the literature, and then we need to sort of say, what's not there? 
what's undone. Learning to t teach students not to just criticize, you know, well, what's wrong with what Jacoby did in his article, but 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 to think it's a much more creative thing to say, what did Jacoby leave out of his article? What's undiscussed? You know, students often like it, it, lots of times in the conclusions of our articles, we write these little things that say. Here, here are the potential weaknesses of our own paper, and we usually write it because a referee required us to write it. You know, that's why I do it. Pretty sure that's why you all do it too. And then, and, and the student will say, "No, but see, Jacoby already told us what the weaknesses of his own analysis are. They're right there." And you go, "No, no, no. What did he? What did he not say? Right? What's 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 not in there? Generally speaking, how might his theory be incomplete? Right? What what causes of this dependent variable hasn't he discussed?" And then lastly, we're very big believers in the role of formal theory as a place where we can generate new uh, ideas that can then be tested in the real world. Right? So we, we'll, we're, we're happy to talk about several examples, the puzzle of turnout being one of them. Right? I mean, that's a super easy one to teach. But another easy one to teach is you know, the median voter theorem and you know, say, well, so are, aren't, there, aren't there some things that the median voter theorem generates as predictions that we can go out and observe maybe places where that does happen and where it doesn't happen, where candidate convergence happens or doesn't? Or we can talk about spatial voting in the same way and, and how proximity voting can can or can't happen. So we think of formal theory as a way of generating uh, ideas that we can go test. So theory building is an art. It's not a science. Um, I, I'm a golfer, and so I always say, um, you know, if I wanted to go outside and, and get struck by lightning, that there, I can't like summon it, you know, not, you know, like I can go like, curse the heavens and, and you know, lightning will come and smite me or something like that. But but there are things that I could do to increase the probability of getting struck by lightning, right? It just, it just increases the likelihood of it. And these are things that we can do to increase the likelihood of having theoretical ideas. I wish that I could sit down in my office and just say, you know, after I finish this cup of coffee, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a theory by 10.15. Uh, <laughs> but it just doesn't work that way, man. It's not for me. If it works that way for you, you're, you're in really good shape. So... After talking about where theories come from, that the rest of the book is designed around <laughs> assessing them. So once we have a causal theory, how do we know whether X causes Y? Right now, this is this is uh, stuff that that uh, Guy and I talk about. This will look very familiar for many of you. Uh, we you'll but you'll see a little wrinkle on uh, the kind of the temporal, the correlation, the spurious, because our first. Uh, causal hurdle, as we call them. We call them the four causal hurdles, and this is the thread that runs throughout our text, throughout our entire classes when we teach them. It's like, we need to think this way. The first causal hurdle is, is there a mechanism? Is there a theory that answers the how and why questions about how more of X will lead to more of Y, or less of Y, depending on the direction of the relationship? And if you don't have a theory that explains it, just stop, right? We're not interested in testing things where it's like, uh, I have this example, because uh, I saw it in the uh, checkout line of the supermarket, of, um, uh, of uh, it's literally from a tabloid, and it says, drink your way to wealth. Study shows that people who drink more alcohol get richer. And you know, there's this huge, huge picture of an American college student with his baseball cap on backwards drinking like a can of Bud Light or some awful 
you know, thing. It's, you know, drink your belly up to the bar and drink your way to wealth. And we just say, is there a credible mechanism that links X to Y like this? And the answer is, you know, there's always one smart aleck kid in class who's like, well, you know, I don't know. Um, okay, you know. No, so stop right there. Now, the rest of them are going to look rather familiar to you, right? So can we rule out the possibility that Y could cause X? Is there co-variation between X and Y? And then the big one, right? The big one that we're all familiar with. How we control for all possible confounders, Z variables, that might make the association between X and Y spurious. And if we haven't controlled for those other confounders, how do we know that it doesn't make the association between X and Y change? It either, it, you know, sometimes there are these great examples, right, where if you omit Z, the XY relationship even flips signs. I mean, those are the great ones, right? Um, so, you know, this one, the fourth causal hurdle, as we refer to it, uh, and as sort of I do it, I, I'm doing it, that's, that, that's next week. Chapter three is next week. So we'll get to the four causal hurdles. And that really beats this. This is the stuff that's like, this is the whole semester, right? This is, this is it. And then everything else, the, the, the statistical techniques that we use, they're all, they're all trying to get you through these fourth causal hurdles. So once we know what the study, of, of course, by the way, we know that as political methodologists, right, the study of causality is more complicated than this. We're well aware of that. We don't teach the Rubin causal model. Uh, we don't teach the counterfactual theories or matching or stuff like that. I mean, they're, they're new enough and controversial enough things. And for teaching 18 or 19 or 20-year-old students, that's just like... I, I, do, I do know a person who says, no, I teach, uh, I teach sophomores uh, uh, stuff about matching and everything like that, and I think, really? I mean, that just seems like, whoa, that's, that's a bridge too far. Um, so what do we do? Uh, how do we, how do we uh, design research to assess causal relationships? And we talk about experiments as the sort of the, the scientific sort of gold standard. They're not perfect. Right, and, 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 and I think it's very useful to talk about the weaknesses of experiments. And, and, and we have a lot of pushback um, from some psychologists, from people in medicine, who say, if you didn't do a randomized controlled trial, you can't talk about causality. You can only talk about correlational studies. And I said, well, okay, that's fine. Let's then, then all of international relations, we can't talk about causality ever in international relations. Because... No, and, you, and your little and, and your experiments that you do with people, where you say like you know, player A is uh, you know India and player B is Pakistan. That no, no, actually, no, they're not. Um, so, so, and and you know, the study of comparative institutions is obviously not experimental. And so, talking about how, especially in studying political science, the, if we're going to say the only way we can talk about causality is through experiments. We're throwing the baby out with that bathwater. I mean, I, I, if, that, if, if that were true, I would say, let's pack it up and go study something else. Because I, I, I just think, I'd go study golf architecture. I don't know what you'd do, but if I couldn't study political science, I'd study golf architecture. So I like talking about the strengths and the weaknesses of experiments. They have lots of strengths. They have particular strengths in dealing with our four causal hurdles, right? So why does an experiment help uh, with the second one, the what could Y cause X? Well. You know, and, and, and you say, well, there you do have temporal precedence. But you also have the idea that says, hey, if x in an experiment, you're randomly assigning x to subjects, well, then what causes x? Randomness. Oh, well, if randomness causes x, then y can't cause x, right? So there's, there's and I've never seen that written that way before. It is an article. Um, 
And then we talk about two kinds of observational studies. Observational studies that, that, you know, that are kind of like wannabe. Uh, I actually used, I don't put it in the slides, but I talk about uh, observational studies as wannabe experiments. Because what are they trying to do? They're trying to get over the same four causal hurdles, but they just have different problems. And in particular, the fourth causal hurdle is almost always a problem. And so we're kind of like, how convinced are we that we're going to get across that fourth one? But there are several examples, right, where we could talk about, well, what, what about the second one? Uh, and there are some really great examples, neat, neat clean examples, like from uh, Ron Englehart about the relationship between, you know, kind of culture and democracy and things, things like that. So studying causality leads to two research designs. We actually spend um, uh, a chapter talking about measurement and why measurement's so important. That, that we're not psychology, right? Where, where on the one hand, almost everything, I mean, the entire d discipline of psychometrics is about measurement, right? When you hear the word psychometrics, you think measurement. Uh, when you hear econometrics, you think structure and estimation, right? Political science is in between these because there are a couple of our concepts that are uniquely our concepts. Good gosh, if that's ours, man. That is, a, as a discipline, this is, this is ours. Um, we let you guys in sociology play with it. That's okay, but it's, but it's ours. <laughs> it's ours. Um, well, some of our concepts are really difficult to measure empirically. How we go about doing it matters. How much does it matter? Well, if you measure something really poorly, then the causal relationships that you observe are going to be wrong. And the, the, the best example of this comes from my, my friend and dissertation committee member, John Sullivan, who wrote a fantastic series of articles in the late 70s and early 80s uh, and, and a book about uh, measuring uh, political tolerance. That APSR article from 1979 reads, reads like, it, reads, it goes down students like ice cream goes down a kid. It's just, it's smooth as anything. They'll, they can read it for, right from the APSR and sit there and say, look at those old Stauffer studies, and say, you know, Stauffer asked people to, you know, whether they were tolerant of, of communists and atheists, and you're like, well, what's wrong with measuring things that way? Well, what if you don't, what, what, what if you happen to be an atheist? And you answer those questions about, yeah, an atheist should be allowed to teach in public school. Does that make you a tolerant person? Students sit there and say, no. Well, duh, they're crappy measures, because not everybody dislikes communists or atheists. Though most students in Texas do, I still verify that. Um, and so I talk about measuring political tolerance, and I have them read the political tolerance measurement article, and it just and it just sings. Um, and he's got great things showing, lots of stuff that's uh, worth talking about. Of course, I'm a public opinion scholar. You may have similar wonderful measurement examples in your own areas of research. Um, we also talk about, you know criticisms of the polity for measure of democracy. Because if Bob Dahl says that democracy is contestation and participation, right? I read, I read two Bob Dahl books, right? He read, what, wrote 50 books? I read two of them. And in one of them, he said, democracy is contestation and participation. Well, guess what? The polity for measure, the most famous measure of democracy in the world, has, it's all contestation. There's no participation in that. Show, show students in the United States the time series of, of the uh, democracy from 1800 to 2008, and it's 10, 10, 10, 10, and then the little blip down when Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus, and then 10, 10, 10, 10. And you know, my grandmother, who was born in 1890, couldn't vote until she was 30. 
The United States became a more democratic country, small d, democratic country in this time, and most people, most undergraduates can get that, right? We need to talk about whether our variables are measured well, especially our variables. Let's talk about some statistics. Students, it's very easy to talk to students about measuring central tendency, right? It's very easy. Uh, they, they get that. That's when we talk about what is a distribution like. Bill had four things that are just terrific. Uh, central tendency is, of course, the easiest one to teach them about. They tend to think that central tendency is the only thing that matters about a distribution. What was the average score in the midterm? 72. I always say this low numbers. But... What about variance? What was the high score and the low score? How tightly clustered or widely dispersed are they? And the reason we talk so much about variance is because it's the foundation for covariation. Um, and I th think the way you talked about that with your graduate students earlier today is quite eloquent. I'm a very big believer in talking about the logic of hypothesis testing to uh, undergraduates. I think absolutely we need to talk about how we almost always observe sample data, but we want to extrapolate to the broader population. That's, that's sort of the goal of the st statistical inference, uh, as we call it. Um, I, 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 I don't think that, uh, well, I, I, I said Bayesian thinking, right? That Bayesian thinking, not Bayesian, not, not teaching a Bayes rule, right? No, that's, I think that's cruel and unusual punishment which in the United States is prohibited under the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution, but you know, maybe not where you're from. Um, but can they handle Bayesian thinking? I, like, I, I actually like injecting a little bit of Bayesian talk when I talk about, so what, what was the most likely process that generated the observations that we see? And that's a little different than the kind of the classic hypothesis testing thing. And I think students can handle a little bit of Bayes-friendly talk. But the most important thing that I think we do, and I absolutely insist on doing this when I teach, I teach my students the central limit theorem. And I, and I teach them by using examples. You can, do it, you can do it with a dice rolling example. And you see that a, the, the role of a fair dice is a uniform distribution, of course. It's uniform close and then but then you know compute a sampling distribution well what's the mean of each sample so do 600 rolls and the means somewhere close to three and a half well do another 600 rolls and it's a little different do another 600 rolls and it's a little different and then plot the means how can you get a sampling distribution you can fake a sampling distribution with rolls of dice and actually this works pretty well in excel because you can show them right on a spreadsheet and then plot i mean you can have a plotted distribution it's actually quite easy um, and then, of course, the central limit theorem works particularly well when you talk about real applications dealing with a public opinion survey, right? So what was President Obama's approval rating last week or whatever, and it was based on a sample of 900 people or thereabouts. So was it exactly 45% or something like that? And they say, well, no, it was. It? No, it was in the 900. So we know that with certainty, but what about with the 200 million adult Americans that that applies to? And then you'd say, well, what if they took another sample and another sample? And, and teaching them the central limit theorem to me is, is absolutely essential. So we do uh, teach some bivariate hypothesis tests just as a way to kind of warm up, right? Just as a warm up. Variable types. What, uh, what, what uh, type of hypothesis test depends on what your variable types are. Categorical variables, we start with two categorical variables and we do tabular analysis and show them how to do a chi-square test. 
Start with a categorical uh, uh, independent variable and a continuous dependent variable, and we show them how to do a difference in means test and why that's kind of nice for experimental data, where you have treatment and control as your independent variable, and usually some continuous measure for your dependent variable. So sometimes, you know, when you have experimental data, it's like, now you're done. That's great. That's easy. Uh, Probit and Logit for continuous and categorical, which we teach to the end of our books. Lots of times people don't get to that. And for two continuous variables, correlation con uh, coefficients and bivariate regression. It's a long chapter. Um, we do teach bivariate regression as a separate chapter. In order to get that, you know, the, the, that intuition that they've forgotten from seventh or eighth grade algebra about, well, what does what does that rise over run mean? And we just we focus ruthlessly on examples where the, 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 the metrics of both X and Y are things that they can understand, right? So simple things like, so for every extra year of schooling, on average, how much uh, extra income should you see? Well, they understand what a year of schooling is, right? And they understand dollars or pounds or euros or what, what have you. They get that. And you say, now you, 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 you all hope, right? You're all undergraduate. You all hope that that, that fate is... Positive and what? Really big. <laughs> All right? Good. Okay. That's good. So statistical significance, just the idea that it's not zero, that's not enough there, right? I mean, you want a really big beta, don't you? You do. You're, you're, otherwise, you know, class dismissed. Get out of here. What are you doing? Let's just go, go, go do something else. And, and, and forcing them to recover the rise over run stuff. I even show them a picture. I do. I show them a picture of Steve Bittinger who taught me... Uh, Algebra in seventh grade. Just because uh, I want them to remember. Like, so who was your seventh grade? Yours, whatever grade it was, who was this? So how much can and should we teach undergraduates? I think that this is, I, I, I don't do too much. I do, I, 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 you know, because one of the things that you, that you said I think is quite right, I, I use the phrase, um, you know, I hate to like pull back the curtain. And so it's like, ta-da, there's the formula for beta hat. You know, there it is. Um, so we describe, I think it's really important to describe what OLS is. What is least squares? We got some really nice graphics, right, with some nice continuous X's and Y's, show the means, and show uh, several hypothetical regression lines, and show how, you know, which line is best, what's best. Well, best minimizes the sum of square deviations, right? Okay, well, and then, and then I'll just talk for five minutes. I say, for those of you who've had calculus, and by the way, the number of students who've had calculus who are undergraduates now is going up. It's much better than when I was that age. You know, it's a lot more, lot more calculus kids at Michigan State these days than there were 20 years ago. Uh, and that's a good thing. And so you can say, here's a little intuition, right? You know, you know a little calculus, and you know that, what do we do with functions? Well, we tend to minimize or maximize them, right? Well, if you take that function, the sum of squared deviations, and they have to be, hold on, you have to buy it. It's a function, right? Okay, so, okay. if you trust me that that's a function, I'm going to minimize it subject to what? Subject to the constraint that the answer has to be a line. And when you do that, you uniquely get that formula for beta hat. I don't show them the math. But I, so it, it's, a, it's a page and a half of math. It's not that long. Say, that's, that's, that's my verbal description, to use your three different ways of talking about it. That's a verbal description of where does the formula for beta hat come from. They understand the goal of OLS. Least squares make sense intuitively to people when you draw them pictures. 
And then, yeah, the formula kind of does have to appear someplace out of no place. But then here's our fourth causal hurdle, right? Multiple regression is the workhorse. It's not the only way, of course, but this is still, it is our workhorse for kind of establishing and, uh, and controlling for other possible explanations. So um, there are two things that multiple regression does, and teaching students the idea that the coefficient for you know, beta hat in a bivariate regression almost surely changes at least some, right? I mean, somewhere down the decimal place, and sometimes it changes substantially once we control for those other variables. And you and and I show them this. I show them examples. We do it in the lab, and 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 they, you go like, oh wow, my gosh, controlling for this, it just completely changes things. You go ah, there there we go. Now we've got you. And so show them to, so show them examples where. And, and teach them to look at regression tables to think, well, well, what's missing? Well, what's missing? What did Jacoby omit from his regression table? And if you see it, then suddenly think, oh my gosh, that's that regression, that's that Z that's not in there. And what happens when we fail to control for uh, other possible causes of the dependent variable? And I show them omitted variables bias and show that there are these two things that happen, um, and that, that the bias is a function of a multiplication of two things, the true effect of z on y and the correlation between x and z. And you know, when you draw the little, does, is there a z that's correlated with x and causes y, da da da, well, that's those two arrows. Say, and I, and I can show them an equation that relates back to a simple little x, y, z drawing with question marks. And good students will get that. Your, your C students will not get that. Your A students will sit there and go like, oh my god, there it is. And you've explained statistics to them in a way that they've never seen before. It works. So that's, that's where I, I take them to places. One of the things that I want to talk about just briefly is encouraging students to, as I said, be, start on the road to becoming original producers of research. To start having ideas and investigating those ideas. And this is going to be an emphasis, a bigger emphasis in the second edition of the book. It's not particularly in the, in the first one. So a student comes to you and says, I want to write a senior honors thesis. I want to do an independent study. I want to do an independent project. This happens, right? It happens with some all the time, right? It happens rather frequently. In the second edition of our book, the last chapter is going to be something, I hope, that, that people just say, go read chapter 12 of Kelstead and Witten's second edition. Because I, I mean, this, this is really the idea. This chapter is designed for you and me and everybody else who's had this exact thing. I, that, I, I appreciate you nodding when, when you saw this, because this is what we were thinking about. Again, emphasizing a new research question. And if you're, gonna, if you're going to do something uh, new, there are, generally speaking, uh, and again, the, this is very general, three routes to a new research question. You can come up with a new y, new dependent variable, and then kind of some x, something. Like, if you can literally envision a new variable, then something that's correlated with it is, like, you're the new status quo. You're the new, you're, you're the, you, you are instantly the conventional wisdom, right? That's the most original type of research project. It's also very difficult, right? It's, that, that's, it is the most creative kind of research project. 
But this is a creative type of research project as well to say, here, um, here's, a, here's an existing dependent variable that we're interested in, but no one's really thought about how this other independent variable might cause that. I've read the literature, and I don't see any you know, discussion of how this might cause that. That's a different kind of research project. That's a, a real contribution, because it's an ability to see the stuff that Kelstead didn't do, or that DeVries didn't do, or that Jacoby didn't do, especially the stuff that Jacoby I'm picking you. You're really getting beat on here in a good way. I think the most common thing that young scholars do as their first type of research paper, this might be the first kind that you did, uh, is an existing XY relationship in a new context. And the new context could be, you know, hey, someone did this in earlier, you know, British elections, but I think that things changed, and we'll see if it still holds even in just a new, con new, just, it's the exact same thing, it's just a different BES study, right? You know, um, that might seem a little more boring, um, but you, but people do it. Change in continuity. Not, Changing that, no, no, I know. I, I, <laughs> be, be, nice, be, be nice to Paul. I don't mean to, I don't mean to be mean to Paul Abramson. Um, you don't have to sit in the same, off the, uh, same hall with it. Very good. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Um, but obviously, this could happen across political contexts. I mean, obviously, the, the, the great example of this, we use the... Um, uh, the theory of economic voting an awful lot in our book for those of you who are familiar with it and, and, and those, those models were developed in the United States uh, not necessarily thinking about like the United States only as the context and when people tried to export the theory of economic voting they found quite puzzlingly some places where it looked like there was a ton of economic voting and some places where there was no evidence whatsoever of it and it produced an amazing literature a fantastic literature that's still growing I mean, that, that, that's, that, that's almost the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, like, well, so why do we see economic voting here and not there? And then we can come up with political explanations for that. And you say, well, there you go. That's very creative work. So if a student's going to produce a, a, a new research question, they have to be able to capably evaluate the literature, again, with a focus on what don't we know. That's that what's missing. That's a, that's a really difficult skill to understand the strengths or weaknesses of varying research designs. Could I do an experiment on this? Why not? Well, maybe I, maybe X isn't subject to randomization. Okay. Well, what are the if you're going to do a cross-sectional observational study, what are the things that I'm going to need to be concerned about? Well, I certainly need to be aware of the literature and what the other, you know, sort of established causes are, etc. You 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 need to be aware of strengths and weaknesses of different designs. And we have an awful lot of emphasis on, uh, in, again, in the new book, uh, not in the first edition, but an awful lot in the new book about saying, going from state output or SPSS output or R output to a table, and what belongs in a table, and how do you then literally, how do you spend time capably talking about a table? Because on the one hand, you know, we teach our graduate students, make tables that can stand alone, right? That's a, and that's great advice. But of course, then we have to write about the table. And, and, and students have just tremendous trouble at the outset. Like, how do I write up the results of a table, especially like column A, column B, column C, three different regression models. In column A of table two, it shows da 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 da. In column B, when we introduce a control for this, it shows da 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 da. And it's like the, 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 the progress that they can make in just a couple of weeks is remarkable. 
Um, and there are, again, great examples from the literature where you, know, you find the simple regression table with three or four things, and you see how the patterns change across those things, and, and say, read good work and learn how to do it from them. This is actually really difficult uh, to teach students to do, even graduate students, but undergraduates can even get a taste of it. So, relatedly, to clearly present tables and figures and to connect text to those tables and figures. And I always describe this as the process of hand-holding, where you say, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like hand-holding with a, like a, a, you know, a seven-year-old child or something like that, where you, you want to say, I made this, now come on, let me walk you through this, and, and you, you, you really need to do some of that walkthrough. Because especially when they're doing assignments for you, what they're thinking is, you know, Professor Spoon is smarter than me. She's the one who gave me the assignment, so I'm not going to, I mean, I'm just going to cut and paste the state output or SPSS output. And of course, the, one of the first rules that we say is cut and pasted tables are completely unacceptable. Almost done. <laughs> yes. I think this is realistic. I do. I actually think that this, that this, that, and, and, I, and how do I, how do I say that I think that this can be done? I think it can be done because, because I know people that do it every semester. Um, I think that that morphing uh, a twelve chapter book into a ten week term would be a really interesting challenge. I'd be delighted. I'd be, I'd be absolutely delighted to work with any one of you when it comes to sort of like. Okay, uh, let's take my ten week or my fifteen week syllabus and make it into your ten week class. Uh, as I said, I, I, I've got slides to give away that you might overemphasize certain things and underemphasize other things. I'm happy to give give as much stuff away as as anyone would like. One of the things that I think is really important. Um, because you know, teaching statistics is not teaching creative work. And so none of this is like my baby or your baby or anything. I didn't derive beta hat, right? I learned it from a textbook, right? So, so don't, don't reinvent the wheel. I, I don't think it makes any sense to reinvent the wheel, to reinvent these classes from absolutely no place. Start with some things that you know at least roll a little bit and, and tweak them. Um, and don't be an evangelist and let students come to the conclusion that they like go. And, and the best thing that they might say about you is, oh my God, I thought I was going to absolutely hate that class. And you know what? It wasn't that bad. And that's an amazing compliment that you sometimes get. And you have to say, that's, that's, that's better than I could have expected. I'm done. I'd be happy to talk to you about any questions that you might have.